the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, February 22nd, 1962. I'm Sally Helm. An excited German woman rushes up to the motorcade and hands Robert Kennedy a bouquet of flowers. The U.S. Attorney General has been dispatched to West Berlin by his brother, President John F. Kennedy, JFK. And now, hundreds of thousands of people have turned out to hear what RFK has to say. Kids run alongside his car as it moves through a crowd 10 people deep. They shout, Bobby, Bobby, and wave whatever cloth they have on hand. Handkerchiefs or towels, tablecloths or flags. There's a reason for their passion. West Berlin is a tiny bastion of American and Western influence smack in the middle of East Germany, which is a communist country. It's been controlled by the Soviet Union since the end of World War II. And about six months ago, West Berliners woke up to a new and troubling feature in their city. A wall circling all around them, keeping them in and East Germans out. It's the front line of the Cold War. And today, at Berlin's City Hall, Bobby Kennedy denounces the wall. He stands in the bitter cold before an even bigger crowd and says that the wall is a symbol of failure, of the bad dream that is communism. And then, just as he's saying this, there's a sudden disturbance. What look like big balloons shoot up above the crowd. Everyone looks towards them, and then the balloons explode. A white parachute emerges from each of them, each attached to a big Soviet red flag, about four feet by four feet. It's a silent, ominous greeting from the East. Bobby Kennedy stops his speech. He improvises. The communists will let the balloons through, he says, but they won't let their people through. The crowd cheers. RFK says East German leader Walter Ulbricht has built that wall because he fears comparison to the West. Kennedy says democratic West Germany is flourishing and despotic East Germany is not. And so, Kennedy adds, that is the true meaning of the wall that lies like a snake across the heart of your city. Mr. Ulbricht and the communists cannot have the contrast. The crowd cheers again, although many suspect that their nightmare won't be ending anytime soon. Today, the Berlin Wall. How did it become ground zero in the fierce global propaganda war between the United States and the Soviet Union? And why did it take so long for the wall to come down? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
1945, the end of World War II. In a ceremony symbolic of the complete destruction of Nazi Germany, the Nazi swastika is blotted out by the stars and stripes. Allied troops march across Germany victorious. Germany, at long last, is smashed. The Western Allies and the Soviet Union have done the smashing. After the war, they divide Germany up like a pie. They cut it from top to bottom. The Western part of the country is split between the US, the UK, and France. It'll be a democratic, capitalist zone. The Eastern part is occupied by the Soviets. It's gonna be communist. And there is one important extra detail. It has to do with Berlin, Germany's capital. The city of Berlin was also divided between East and West. Hope Harrison is a history professor at George Washington University and author of the book, Driving the Soviets Up the Wall. She told us the Allied countries controlled West Berlin and the Soviets held East Berlin. And here's what's really odd about the situation. The city of Berlin sits in the northeast corner of the country, squarely inside East Germany. The Iron Curtain comes down in Germany in such a way that the city of Berlin now lies deep within the Soviet zone. So West Berlin was located 110 miles inside of communist East Germany. And that's a precarious position for West Berlin. Because in the years after Germany is carved up, a feud breaks out. It pits countries from the West, led by the United States, against the Soviet Union. The two sides had been allies during World War II, but now they're enemies. With competing economic systems, competing ideologies, competing militaries, sitting nose-to-nose in the capital of Germany. They rubbed up against each other within the city of Berlin. It was the center of the Cold War. The Soviets' first attempt to push the Allies out of Berlin is in 1948. They cut off food and supply lines to the west part of the city, but the Allies get around that using planes. After the so-called Berlin airlift, the Soviets back off. But by 1952, tensions are very high. The West has consolidated its zone into a new nation called West Germany, which is a more powerful state than the Soviets had wanted on their border. And in fact, they have closed that border to keep East German citizens from crossing over to the West. That meant that after 1952, the only open border for Germans to go back and forth between communism in the East and democracy and capitalism in the West was through Berlin. Berlin is now the only window East Germans have into life on the other side. That allows them to judge which way of life is better. Because people could go back and forth and see the difference between the systems, the Soviet leaders and the American leaders all felt that their system had to show that it was better in Berlin. This puts a heavy load of pressure on the leader of the East German state, Walter Ulbricht. 
So Walter Ulbricht was really focused not just on setting up an East German communist state, but on ultimately preserving his own power as the leader of that state. Ulbricht has a high-pitched, squeaky voice and stands at just five feet four inches. He has glasses, a little goatee. As the New York Times puts it, he has the look of a small-town dignitary who has stumbled into the big world and is determined to hide his confusion. But Ulbricht also has that classic German discipline. He starts each day with 10 minutes of calisthenics. He is known to never laugh or smile, and he's serious about his communism. Like many German communists, he had fled to the Soviet Union during the war to avoid Nazi persecution. He was in Moscow being trained in how to set up a communist regime and becoming closer and closer to the Soviet leaders. Now, Ulbricht has a big problem in Berlin. American newsreels describe it in the starkest terms they can conjure up. The contrast with life in West Berlin is readily evident. The streets and the con- They didn't have as many lights, so it was dark compared to the West, but also colors. It was gray and dull. The streets and the communist part of the city are drab and almost deserted. The shop windows almost empty. These Germans were able to go into West Berlin. They would see the shops filled with goods, which they weren't in the East. They wouldn't see newspaper kiosks with a free press. Here, the East German refugees get their first uncensored news of the world. They could see movies, Hollywood movies. And in fact, the West set up movie theaters right near the border. Dozens of little stands have been set up near the sector border to satisfy the craving of the East Berliners for such commodities as soap. Soap. You couldn't get good soap in East Berlin. Or fashionable clothing. There are also regular shortages of food. Small wonder that the people of East Berlin seize every opportunity to visit or seek refuge in West Berlin. By 1953, so many East Germans are crossing into West Berlin that communist authorities threaten to stop trains moving from east to west. The only effect of this threat was to intensify the panic among the East Germans and increase the flow of refugees to a peak at one point of more than 3,000 persons a day. And then in June, tens of thousands of East Germans revolt against their system of government. Protesters take to the streets and raise a chant against Ulbricht and other East German leaders. Roughly translated, goatee, paunch, and spectacles, the people find rejectable. That uprising was put down by the Soviets with troops and tanks. And after that, Walter Ulbricht always felt really nervous. This could happen again. And so he wanted to crack down. He trains his attention on the open border in Berlin. It's a loophole in the communist system of control. And in fact, that is exactly what Ulbricht called it. He kept pressing to Soviets, let me close this loophole. I need to close this loophole in Berlin and stop people from escaping. 
Ulbricht is determined to fully and finally separate the people of East and West Berlin. He soon takes it all the way up to the leader of the Soviet Communist Party, Nikita Khrushchev. But Khrushchev has a different idea. Ulbricht was the pragmatist. I would say Khrushchev was more of a dreamer. In the mid-50s, Khrushchev has just taken over the Soviet Communist Party. Khrushchev is a vibrant personality. He's also prone to emotional outbursts. Like, there's a widely repeated story about a United Nations meeting when Khrushchev was talking about the superiority of the Soviet system and emphasized the point by removing his shoe and repeatedly banging it on the table. Khrushchev had this boundless optimism in communism. He just thought, this is absolutely the way of the future. This brought me up from, you know, my family life as peasants. It was the communist Red Army that largely defeated Hitler in World War II. The West came in very late. Khrushchev overrules Ulbricht's request to crack down hard. Saying, you know, you're being too harsh, you've got to moderate your policies. He sends Ulbricht the message, instead of responding to the people with more restrictions, remind them of the beauty of the system. And he sweetens the deal. Khrushchev began giving him more and more economic aid. If troops and tanks are the stick, then the carrot will be clothing and soap. Maybe now the East German citizens will quiet down. But when it comes to providing consumer goods, the East just can't compete with the capitalist West. People are still going hungry, and more and more of them are crossing the border into West Berlin. Between February and May of 1960, the number of refugees more than doubles. Ulbricht has had enough. Ulbricht was not a dreamer. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, communism is wonderful, but guess what? My people are leaving. I need to stop that. So Ulbricht followed a two-pronged strategy, basically. On the one hand, he was constantly bombarding Khrushchev with phone calls, with letters, and in their meetings, you know, talking, you've got to help me, you've got to close the border. But he also, in spite of the fact that Khrushchev kept telling him point blank, do not act unilaterally in Berlin, Ulbricht started preparing things. He appoints a top-secret committee to figure out how to stop the droves of people who are fleeing the East. But remember, this is against Khrushchev's orders. Khrushchev isn't ready to resort to a drastic step. He later wrote in his memoirs, look, you know, I knew everyone would say, what kind of a great system is this if you have to build a wall to keep your people in? He knew they would look terrible if they close the border in Berlin. Instead, Khrushchev takes a different tack, international diplomacy. The United States has elected a new president, John F. Kennedy, and Khrushchev wants something from Kennedy. To try to get the West out of West Berlin. That's what Khrushchev wanted. He figured if the U.S., British, and French forces leave West Berlin, it'll become weak. A weak West Berlin without Western troops could maybe be folded into East Germany and absorbed into the Soviet sphere. So Khrushchev reaches out to Kennedy's people and says, let's talk. 
Khrushchev and Kennedy met in Vienna in a summit in June of 1961. On the surface, the meeting is cordial. No shoe banging. But there's at least one very tense moment when Khrushchev basically tells Kennedy that he's got to get Western troops out of West Berlin. President Kennedy said, no way. We are not leaving. Our reputation is riding on Europeans feeling that essentially that we have their back. We are not leaving. And Khrushchev said, well, then, you know, there may be war because we insist. When Kennedy gets back to Washington, he tells his brother Bobby, the attorney general, that negotiating with Khrushchev is like dealing with dad, all give and no take. At the summit, Kennedy stands firm. But privately, he worries about dark outcomes if he and Khrushchev don't stop playing chicken over Berlin. After all, both sides have nuclear weapons. I mean, basically, there was no way... If the Soviets just attacked militarily West Berlin, there was no way the U.S. could prevail unless it resorted to nuclear weapons, which, you know, was pretty tough. Nobody wanted to risk nuclear war, but you never knew sort of how far can you push it. Around the world, newspapers are running anxious articles about how to survive a nuclear attack. It feels like someone is slowly turning the handle on a diabolical jack-in-the-box, and everyone's just waiting for it to pop. Well, you can imagine the impact of this on the East Germans who wanted to leave. There's a word in German called Torschlusspanik, which is all one word, but it's three words. It's panic of the door closing. And that's what many East Germans had. So after that failed summit, in the weeks that followed, over 1,000 East Germans were leaving every single day, going to West Berlin. Khrushchev's strategy has backfired. Instead of getting Western troops out of Berlin, his hardball tactics are risking war. And that is only increasing the exodus of East Germans. So in July, Khrushchev finally agrees to a tactic that he has long rejected. He asks his military commander in Berlin to assess the possibility of closing the border. The commander returns with two options. Shut off air traffic to West Berlin or seal the border on the ground. Khrushchev chooses option two. So Soviet and East German military officials started drawing up the plans to seal the border. Ulbricht springs into action. His secret committee has already figured out how to cut off streets, railroads, and subways that connect East and West Berlin. But he wonders how best to quickly divide the city. Barbed wire, he decides, will use barbed wire, and we'll need to roll it out at just the right moment. They decided to do it on a weekend in August when lots of people were at their little cottage, their dacha outside of Berlin, you know, when people wouldn't be paying a lot of attention. Still, the move is sure to spark a public response. Soviet troops start arriving in Berlin to back up the East German troops already there. By early August, everything is ready. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Picture your city or your county or your town. You know people living all over, some close by, some further away, your family and friends, your doctor, your dentist, the person who gives you a haircut. When you want to see them, you go where they are, or they come to you, or you meet somewhere in between. It's all just part of the rhythm of your life, the routine freedom of movement that you take for granted. That's what Berlin was like in 1961. It was one city. You lived in one part. You Maybe you worked in the other part. Maybe your brother, maybe your fiancé was in the other part. Maybe you were going to university at the other part. Your job. But then... You wake up one summer Sunday morning to find a 96-mile barbed wire wall rising up from the ground. That's what they saw. Construction workers backed up with soldiers, barbed wire going across streets. So the East Berliners and the West Berliners were completely shocked. They're like, what is going on? What's going on is there are places you can no longer go and people you won't be seeing anymore. Your life as you've known it is over. That is what it's like to wake up in Berlin on the morning of August 13th, 1961. Some people absolutely were gathering at the border, waving to their loved ones on the other side, screaming at the guards, the construction troops building the wall. The move is so shocking that it's hard for Berliners to comprehend. It's like it can't be real. Most of them thought there's no way this is going to last. And many of them were certain President Kennedy will not allow this. West Berliners are saying to themselves, President Kennedy won't let the Soviet Union shut us up in a barbed wire cage, will he? He won't accept that our friends and family living on the east side of Berlin are just stuck there? Kennedy, meanwhile, is on vacation. At the family compound, he was sailing and he came back in and that's when he learned. Kennedy and his advisors had known that Khrushchev would make a move. He had to stop the flow of defectors from East Berlin. It was getting embarrassing. This refugee exodus is quite dramatic. The communists are going to need to shut this down somehow. How are they going to shut it down? Turns out, with a wall. So now, Kennedy is confronting a new provocation. 
And what he said to one of his closest aides privately was, a wall is a hell of a lot better than a war. Because Kennedy and others in the West had been very worried, like, where is this going? In response to the wall, Kennedy at first says nothing. He needs to figure out a way to condemn Khrushchev's action without provoking a military response. You know, might they attack West Berlin and then might that all lead to World War III? Because that's where everyone thought World War III would begin, was in Berlin. So Kennedy moves carefully, takes his time. It took several days till they sent a formal note of protest, which for the Berliners was like, are you kidding me? That's it? That is it for now. Even though in Berlin, things go from bad to worse. Within days, East German workers begin replacing the barbed wire with concrete on Walter Ulbricht's orders. He was very frustrated. You know, the whole point was to stop people from leaving. So the barbed wire wasn't completely doing that. His military chief said, yeah, but a wall can cast shadows. You know, it'll be a little bit harder to see people. And he insisted, this has to be a wall. The message is clear. This is a permanent barrier. And Berliners in the East and West are also coming to realize that Kennedy will not be saving them. Heartbroken, shocked, angry, trapped. Trapped. It's as good a word as any to describe the Cold War. The United States and the Soviet Union are trapped in a dangerous struggle for power and influence. The playing field is global. Allies and proxies on both sides are caught up. And overhanging all of it is nuclear Armageddon. The millions of people, mostly civilians, who will die if cities are targeted. Cities like Berlin. The U.S. and the Soviet Union felt they each had their own sphere of influence. And in order to avoid an escalation to nuclear war, you just did not mess with the other side's sphere of influence. So President Kennedy does not take military action against the wall. Instead, he and the presidents who follow him oppose it mainly on two fronts, diplomatic and symbolic. That's why, within a year, JFK sends his brother, RFK, to stand in West Berlin and pledge American support after mocking the pro-Soviet propagandists and their exploding balloon rockets. A little more than a year later, in June 1963, JFK himself stands at the wall and delivers the now well-known line. As a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner, he's saying. I'm with you. The crowd of over a million West Germans erupts into applause. It's a hopeful moment, but eclipsed by the grim reality in Berlin. The wall takes its first casualty just over a week after it goes up. A woman dies trying to cross from east to west. And over time, one wall becomes two, separated by a death strip up to 160 yards wide. It's studded with towers and floodlights, strewn with tripwires, patrolled by armed guards who shoot to kill. 
Over the decades, some East Germans will figure out how to escape by swimming across canals or by stowing away in the trunks of cars driven by friends from the West who were allowed to come and go freely. But hundreds will also die trying. Not only that... 77,000 people were arrested over those 28 years for trying to escape or being suspected of trying to escape or having helped someone to escape. It was a crime. These people are risking their very lives to taste something we too often take for granted, liberty. Decades later, in 1987, another U.S. president travels to Berlin. President Ronald Reagan has a demand for Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Mr. Gorbachev has been reforming the Soviet Union, but he does not tear down the wall. That happens two years later, in 1989. The wall comes down peacefully at the hands of the people of East and West Germany. If the Soviet Union was a house, the Berlin Wall was a crucial part of it. You could say it was a load-bearing wall. When it fell, it left the Soviet state gravely weakened. It's the beginning of the end of the Cold War. So, of course, there was rejoicing. But Hope Harrison says it wasn't all joyous for the Germans who had been forced for so long to live with the wall and the suffering that came with it. You know, the people who lost a loved one who was killed at the wall, the fall of the wall for them was this incredible bittersweet thing. Because on the one hand, they felt, you know, wow, thank God, you know, the wall is down. But on the other hand, they felt this happened way too late you know, for my son, who was killed trying to escape. Today, Berlin and Germany are united. But about a mile of the wall has been left standing here and there as a memorial. A reminder that something as impossible as a 96-mile wall going up overnight in the crucible of the Cold War, with its symbolic battles backed by nuclear weapons, in that context, it happened. And something like it could always happen again. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to Hope Harrison, professor of history and international affairs at George Washington University and the author of Driving the Soviets Up the Wall, Soviet-East German Relations, 1953 to 1961. Harrison's most recent book starts where our story ends. It's called After the Berlin Wall, Memory and the Making of New Germany, 1989 to the Present. Thanks also to Andreas Dahm, author of Kennedy in Berlin. Archival materials courtesy of A Plus E Networks. This episode was produced by Julia Press and co-produced by Morgan Givens. 
It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Dan Rosado. History This Week is also produced by Corinne Wallace and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.